my numbers seem to be doubling uh, week to week on this. But let's let's go ahead and go over uh, kind of the outline for today. As usual, and kind of this new format that I'm doing, we're going to go over trade psychology to start, which is really getting our head uh, put on straight in order to make sure that we're making smart financial decisions based on numbers and not just our opinions or beliefs. We're going to talk about the Bitcoin ETF, some of the stuff that Jamie Dimon said around this uh, that I'm not completely thrilled about, but uh, he, you know, you're entitled to have your own opinion. We're going to go over layoffs, some of the surprises with layoffs, even after we had uh, a large job increase um, surprise that happened at uh, the end of last year. We're going to go through some of the inflation that's happening in other sectors, kind of this lagging indicator, uh, one of which being insurance. And I don't know if you guys have seen insurance premiums spike and car insurance premiums spike, but uh, that's a real thing. And we're going to talk about that and kind of why uh, it's happening. We're going to talk about some deflationary things that are happening, uh, including crude oil and oil prices. So if you're excited to go to the gas station and see prices drop, we're going to be talking about uh, the trend that that's probably going to continue into and what to expect uh, throughout the, probably the first quarter. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the AI progress that's been happening in this country, what we can expect in terms of anticipation, and what's called the Gartner hype cycle to kind of help you understand like where we're at inside of all of this. Uh, and then I have kind of a funny joke to go along with that. We'll do our money mishaps and then we'll do my my favorite part of our training, which is our trade review, where I, go, I look at the S&P 500 and I look at gold and we go over exactly like what's happening in the market. So let's get started. Uh, I want to play this little video and I found this, I found this from Randy last week. And I really like this, um, this little snippet. So I'm going to play this again from Randy. This is a video. Uh, well, I'll just I'll just play it and then we'll get started because you guys, if you're here last week, you already saw this. So here's Randy on psychology. Well, there's a wonderful thing about trading is that most of us spend a lifetime avoiding our psychological demons. In trading, they're going to stalk you. They're going to find you. And trading offers the incredible environment of getting in tune with yourself, developing yourself psychologically so that you're a better human being in a lot of domains, including trading. But you have to understand, trading is going to provide a platform that's going to give you a scalpel to look at your psyche, and you're going to have to reorganize it to be a really good trader. All right, I think that's a perfect segue going into this. And the reason I bring up this quote, and we'll, you know, I might work this into like some short video that we play. But one of the things that is fascinating, I got involved in trading almost 15 years ago. And a lot of people who are psychologists, therapists, life coaches, people who have spent their life dedicated to human development, personal development, and kind of getting your psyche screwed on straight, having a, a really uh having really good mental health. I don't know if I've structured that statement correctly, but I've had people come up to me multiple times and like, Matt, like, where did you get your training? How did you do all this work on yourself? And if I were to pinpoint one area that has catapulted my mental health, catapulted my uh, personal development, it's been trading. Because if you are ignoring anything in your life that needs support, if you think you can just go to trading and ignore that, it's going to rear its ugly head. It's going to show up 
and frankly be this ugly thing that shows up in your trading. And unfortunately, the way it's going to show up is you're going to have negative trade results. So I like to see negative trade results. I like to see uh, my losses as almost an indicator to something in my psychosis that is wrong, something around my beliefs that is wrong. And so I want to segue this into a, a really quick, we're going to talk for about 10 minutes about the difference between numbers and opinions. So numbers are numbers, right? And opinions are opinions. And I want to share with you the difference between what is your belief or your opinion about something versus the data behind it. Now, facts typically stand for themselves. They, if you, uh, unemployment number comes out and the number is what it is versus what you think the belief is around it, they're going to be and can be often two radically different things. And when your opinion and or your belief is put up against the actual facts of the data, numbers will always win. They'll always beat your opinion. But why is it that we put so much emphasis and often in our trading, in our investing, and in how we like move through life even, is there's this constant uh, weight in how we feel about it and, and the connection to our belief and opinion about it. And to understand that, it's important to understand what I call the anatomy of a belief, meaning that there is this kind of this uh, idea of like or breakdown of what the anatomy of a belief actually is. And when I talk about beliefs and the anatomy of it, I liken it unto like a table. And most tables have four legs, right? And without the four legs, it's unstable. You know, you can have a three-legged table and it'll hold itself up. But without multiple legs, the thing that you put on top of it has nothing solid to stand on, right? You can easily tip it over. A three-legged table would be much easier to tip over than a two-legged table. And when we have beliefs, especially when it comes to money, these are not three-legged beliefs. These are not four-legged beliefs. Often these are like 50 leg beliefs, meaning that the belief that we have is often rooted by multiple things. And let me share like what the the legs might be. Uh, the legs could often be things like your uh, common consensus. It may be something like you and a friend share this belief. And so since you have consensus with a population, a group, you'll stack those additional legs, you'll point to, well, so-and-so believes this. And so it adds cement or it adds an additional leg to your belief. Uh, some of the beliefs are often like statistics and statistics. I don't like statistics. People confuse statistics with data and numbers. And, and while they will use data and numbers, statistics are largely manipulated. You can get a statistic to say just about anything you want and how you ask the question will often pull out the answer that you're looking for. And so uh, I had a statistics teacher who also taught psychology, and this was like one of the biggest questions on her test was, what is a statistic? And one of the answers was a way to manipulate a common shared belief. And she really wanted to drive this idea for her students that like, 
just because you hear a statistic that 90% of people, blah, 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 fill in the blank, it doesn't actually mean that that's the truth. It's driving some type of uh, opinion to have or maybe even cause some type of effect in society. And so no, because no two beliefs are the same, you know, maybe you have a crazy belief around money, you've got a crazy belief around how relationships should work, around your health, or maybe something that's even spiritual, uh, because no two beliefs are the same, how these legs get built are radically different per belief. And so understanding, to me, understand the anatomy of the belief or the opinion uh, has a lot to do with what the result will be in terms of how you react to it. Because if you have a belief, like let me just give you an example. If you have a belief that you should save your money over spend, invest, and look for ways to turn it into additional money. If your core belief around money is hoard it, store it, put it in my cave like a squirrel and keep it through the winter, uh, that belief may radically impact your end result. Meaning if I were to put that belief against the data around people who take money and invest it commonly in the stock market, people that use compound interest in their favor, people that look for ways to invest or people that look for ways to earn versus save. The belief, yes, is the belief around earning, is the belief around saving still a belief? Yes. But there's also upgraded beliefs where like your table of like, well, I should learn how to first save and hoard there's some solid surface area to like, you know, start to plant your caches or your stacks of cash on top of the belief of earning the table may be wider. And so I like to look at beliefs as kind of this, they're not, they're never concrete. They're not actually real. The way that I hold beliefs is in the context of truth where there's nothing called absolute truth with a belief, but there's always something truer. And so as we look at our beliefs around money, I like to personally look at it through the scope of, is there something truer? Is my belief around me saving, did it get me so far? Yes. If you're someone who's you know, radically in debt, you're, you've got maxed out credit cards, you don't know how to save money, obviously moving to the belief around saving or hoarding might be an upgrade for you because your surface area around spending and having a ton of debt might be really small. The surface area around saving might be bigger. And then the surface area around having an earning mentality or an investing mentality is even larger. And there is kind of an order to these beliefs also. I would I typically find that people don't move to the earning investing stage until they first have something. And so you might have to move from this like debt mentality to a savings mentality first then go from that and go, oh, what's truer? Oh, maybe I need to move, knock out some of these legs to move to a different table. So uh, beliefs versus opinions, radically important. When we talk about this next segment, as I go into the Bitcoin ETF, a lot of this, uh, a lot of these constructs, a lot of this context will play into that. And I, I really want you to get a sense of how all this is going to work. How, what happened with the Bitcoin ETF? Why is the price going down? And how, like my belief was, and by the way, not just, you know, a lot of people, but a lot of people's belief was after the ETF came, there'd be this like massive spike in the price. And I was telling people a contrarian belief, 
uh, much before that based on data, not based on hype cycle beliefs. And so as we go into this next segment, take this concept of my belief versus opinion and see how in reality, when you start looking at data versus your beliefs around what you think is going to happen, the data wins and the belief just doesn't matter. There's nothing you can, you can't willfully push your belief into the market and expect a result. It just doesn't happen that way. Okay. So transitioning into this, let's talk about this Bitcoin ETF. And as we do, I want to share this video from Jamie Dimon. Uh, this is JP Morgan's CEO, obviously a, a radically important person when it comes to the financial world. But he has a very unique opinion on uh, this Bitcoin ETF and kind of a contrarian one uh, for that matter. And so I'm going to play this really quickly for you guys. Let's see if I can get this up. And we're going to play it till about four minutes in. So let me share this. And this was a video that came out just after uh, the ETF Bitcoin filing. So here's Jamie Dimon on CNBC making comments about the Bitcoin uh, ETF fall, uh, filing and his kind of personal opinions. And obviously keep that in mind. This is his personal opinion. We pivot to a topic that I know I know you you find sort of laborious at this yeah. point. Uh, <laughs> That's a good which, good word. Which is Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, this ETF was approved yeah. uh, just about a week ago now, yeah. and I think a lot of people are trying to understand what it ultimately means. Yeah. Uh, J.P. Morgan, I imagine uh, if you're a client of J.P. Morgan, you could call your broker and say, uh, get, "Get get me some of this ETF." Mm -hmm. uh, what are you telling What are you telling your brokers to tell them back when they make that call? Yeah. So this is an important thing. I would, this is the last time I've ever talked about this in CNBC, okay? So help me God. <laughs> Blockchain is real. It's a technology. We use it. It's going to move money. It's going to move data. It's efficient. We've been talking about that for 12 years, too, and it's very small, okay? So I think we've wasted too many words in that. Cryptocurrencies, there are two types. There's a cryptocurrency which might actually do something. Think of a cryptocurrency as an embedded smart contract right. in it, and that we can use it to buy and sell real estate and move data. That may have value. The idea of tokenizing things. Tokenizing things that, that you do something with. And then there's one which does nothing. I call it the pet rock, the Bitcoin or something like that. And so on the Bitcoin, you know, there's, first of all, and I'm, I'm not trying to make a joke here. There are use cases, AML, fraud, anti-money laundering, tax avoidance, sex trafficking. Those are real use cases, and you see it being used for hundreds, maybe 50, 100 billion dollars a year for that. That is the end use case. Everything else is people train among themselves. So, Speculate. You yeah. Now, okay. Now, my last statement, the last time I ever talked about Bitcoin, is I defend your right to do Bitcoin. I think, you know, it's okay. okay. I don't want to tell you what to do. So my personal advice would be don't get involved. Right. But I don't want to tell any one of you what to do. It's a free country. What do you and make so, of what do you make of BlackRock? What do you make of the other firms, the BlackRocks of the world that that obviously and, and Larry, Larry Fink changed his view of this, obviously. Yeah. And maybe he changed his view because you think he genuinely believes in Bitcoin or genu or believed it because he thinks that there's a marketplace for it and he wants to be part of that market. But what do you think of the I mean there's a, about a dozen big financial companies, Fidelity no, included. No, number one, I don't care. So just please stop talking about this shit. And, and I don't know what he would say about blockchain versus currencies that do something versus Bitcoin that does nothing. It may be that not different than me. But, you know, this is what makes a market. People have opinions. This is the last time I'm ever going to state my opinion. Gold really didn't do anything either. 
You have Bacall's limited in supply. So it's Bitcoin. And it's been used. Uh, so you think so, huh? I do. I think there's a good chance that when Bitcoin, when we get to that 20 million Bitcoins, that Satoshi's going to come on there, laugh hysterically, go quiet, and all Bitcoin's going to be erased. I think, man. How the hell do you know it's going to stop at 21? I've, I've never met one person who told me they know for a fact. They take that Mathematically, as, it's, it, it, it's not, it can't happen because by the last one will be mined in 2150, and it, it, it gets harder and harder every time there's another halving. But, but Jamie, it, I, look, looking guys, back you over... You do what you want, I'll do what I want. As for gold, you can, the, the six characteristics that make gold valuable for 4,000 years, they're yeah. all present in Bitcoin. That's all I'll say, and I love you, and I don't want to... You, you, and I also, I don't, also don't want to be a... You, you may, Joe, Joe, you may be right. Yeah. I, I don't own gold either, so okay. Uh, that's what I mean. A couple of quick final questions. I like to own things that pay me incomes. Uh, it doesn't cost money to carry. Anyway, and it costs money to carry Bitcoin too, by the way. We've so. talked a lot about yeah. commercial real estate uh, here uh, in Davos. There was a big 60 Minutes piece on, on Sunday. And oh, yeah. All right. So that <laughs> covers a very unique uh, perspective coming from Jamie Dimon, obviously on Bitcoin, and one that I would say was a little unexpected to show up on the news, but what does the news love? The news loves contrarian viewpoints. And as we talk about this, I just want you to kind of take all of this uh, from a, a kind of a vantage point perspective. Like take what Jamie Dimon just said from a very distant view, a very high level view, and then Take in all of this stuff around ETF and how the market's going to respond. And you can kind of start to see a macro and a micro uh, view vantage point that can be traded. And whether you believe in Bitcoin or not, there's always a trade. And that's the beauty of trading is you don't have to be in love with something. You just have to be watching the cycles, the hype, and the and somewhat the news uh, to understand like how human psychology is going to play into the actual price. Now, how many of you have been watching uh, Bitcoin's price lately? It's not been doing great. And to many people, this seems like the opposite of what should have been happening with Bitcoin's price. And so I want to bring up just really quickly uh, Bitcoin on the charts. And I want to show you what has happened since the ETF filing and why this happens. There's actually a concept in the market that's been known for decades and traders have been trading for decades that uh, largely plays into this. So let's let's go to, to my chart. So here is uh, Bitcoin. Let's see if I can get this moved out of the way. There we go. I just have to be able to see it. So this is Bitcoin, and I, I've got this open on green chart, our charting software that I like to use. And you can see this is a daily chart. And you could, you know, if we went way back, you could see it all the way back to the high when it hit over 60. But you can see this line I drew in here is the day the ETF got approved. And look what has happened every single day following the ETF filing. We went, in fact, it spiked all the way up to almost $50,000 a coin. And now we're at 40. That is a $10,000 a coin drop in just the time that this ETF finally happened. Do you guys understand the significance of $10,000 on 50,000? That's a 20% drop in the total price of Bitcoin. It's, it's enormous. 
And so had you bought during that news announcement, you would be screaming at your returns right now. You would be uh, infuriated. And so when Jamie Dimon comes on here and he you know, talks about uh, what Bitcoin's going to do and his belief around Bitcoin, you have to understand that the filing has already happened. And so what I want to do with you really quickly is I want to talk to you about a concept in the market that's called buy the rumors, sell the news. Or another way to say it is buy the rumors, sell the facts. And I'll, let me let me kind of break this down and explain to you why, like why this all matters. So I'm going to give you some uh, concepts around this. So in buy the news, sell the rumors or sell the facts, there's this idea of anticipation versus speculation. Or you could say anticipation and speculation. Before the ETF filing happened, there was all this speculation around that it was going to happen. And so what happens is the rumors create this expectation that it will eventually happen. Well, when were the rumors happening with the ETF filing? Let me show you on the charts. Let's go back to this. They weren't happening a day before, right? It wasn't happening... It wasn't happening a week before, although that would have been fine to get in on the price. The rumors were happening way back here when it was close to $30,000 a coin. And what was happening is the SEC was putting up all this, this noise and nonsense. Gary Gensler was like pushing up against Bitcoin. Obviously, we know he's not an advocate and his crew is not an advocate of Bitcoin. Uh, but there were over 10 ETF filings that were just being held, which was ridiculous. And then we had one ETF filing that got denied. Uh, the courts actually said, no, you need to reconsider this. This was not a fair ruling. And so there was a lot of pressure on the SEC to get this ETF approved. And when they did, they approved over, I, I, actually, I think they approved 11 exactly. And when that happened, you can see rumors was back here. Back in April of last year, May last year. I mean, really, you could have bought the rumors any time in this price zone. Any time it was close to, you know, ten or excuse me, thirty thousand dollars. You know, it got down into like twenty five, twenty when the rumors were getting heavy. But these ETF filings were coming out a long time ago, so people were buying those rumors in anticipation that this was going to come out. Then you have this thing called. Uh, price movement before the facts. So because of the demand based on the rumor that someday it's very likely these ETFs going to come out. In fact, there are analysts saying there's a 90% chance it's going to happen in the spring. There's all and so all these these speculative speculative uh analyses by highly credible analysts they start coming out with this data and it creates even more demand before the announcement happens. And so it may not even be marked what I call marked to market. The price of Bitcoin may not be actually marked to its actual value price when an ETF rumor comes around and demand pushes it up even sometimes above what it's actually worth because of the hype, because of the increase in the demand based on the rumor. And then this is what we call speculative premium, where the premium of the price of the coin 
uh, goes far beyond what it's actually worth. And we call that speculative premium because it's actually not marked to market. We actually don't know what the actual value is. Then the release of the actual news comes out, the actual facts, it came out. Now 11 ETFs have been filed and now there's no hype. There's no like rumors. There's no memes. There's no one talking about, well, once this ETF comes out, there's going to be trillions of dollars that's going to go in. And, you know, let's say 1%, you know, there's people saying, well, if 1% of all portfolios put money into Bitcoin into these ETFs, it's going to go to like $400 a coin. There's nothing about that anymore. Why? Because it's happened. The ETF is now in. And now what are people looking at? They're looking at either A, selling off their profits from buying the rumor because what are they looking at into the future? They're going, well, what what new rumors, what new speculative uh, future do we have around Bitcoin? And frankly, there isn't much. In fact, the fact that Jamie Dimon came in right after this, it's like that's the new rumors. The new rumors is, I mean, you heard him say it himself. The government's going to need to shut this down. That's Jamie Dimon's opinion is that because Bitcoin's only application is illegal and illicit activity, that governments are going to have to shut this down and make it illegal. And so it's like, whoa, is that the new speculation around Bitcoin? Is that this whole thing was a waste that we finally got the ETF filed and this huge name like Jamie Dimon comes in? Well, yeah, of course. Of course, you're going to see that on the news because there's no more good news to be hyping about. And so until there's the having that's about to happen, uh, and by the way, halvings usually cause a, a drop uh, also afterwards and then a climb that goes in, t- in about a year after. At least that's a trend with Bitcoin. Until that happens, we have nothing to hold on to. There are no buying rumors to increase demand. And so it's very common that this buy the rumors, sell the news, sell the facts plays out not just in Bitcoin. Guys, it happens in almost every market and every category that you can invest in across the globe. And we're seeing it today. And you saw it in the price. I'm going to show this just one more time. The announcement came out. The facts actually happened. 11 ETFs were approved. Price dropped because everyone's going, well, I got all my profits. I made a ton of money. I bought at 25. I'm not seeing anything into the future that would bring this price significantly up. So I'm out. And I'll also say that a lot of the market movers use the news to exit their positions. I know it's it's kind of a, when you see it this way, it, it sounds awful, but high level investors, smart investors is what we call them, not the retail side, but smart investors actually stack up huge amounts of cash and they wait for times where there is an insane amount of increase in demand based on speculation, based on, you know, kind of the the ape hype cycle where we all kind of ape together and we're just dumb investing in based on the news. Most people are buying the news. Like when this ETF went in, I, I would imagine most retail investors started getting excited and started buying it. And so we saw this little spike up to 50,000 while the smart investors are going, I can finally get out. There's tons of liquidity to pull out my billions of dollars in Bitcoin uh, to take the price now rather than having it drop down uh, into the 25s later. And so unfortunately, the small guys get hurt. 
the big guys make a fortune. And I actually saw this play out with my Doge trade years ago. The way it happened is there was this, there was a lot of hype that Elon Musk was going to get on SNL and was going to say this thing about Dogecoin. And that was going to go viral. And because of that, it'd create an insane amount of demand. And people were talking about it for weeks. And I remember thinking, wait, this is one of those buy the rumors, sell the news. And so everyone was talking about like, is Elon going to do it? Is it going to happen? Blah, blah, blah. And I remember going, I need to get out before this SNL uh, skit happens, even if he does or doesn't do it. Well, guess what? He does it. He went on live camera. You can find it on SNL. And he said like Dogecoin to the moon or something. He said something else also that was like kind of down the middle, middle lane. Uh, However, one of the unique things that happened is he said it and it crashed. In fact, after that announcement, Doge never saw its high ever again and never saw that price ever again. And so it's really important to understand that this principle of buy the rumor, sell the news, you can find patterns of it everywhere. And like we just talked about in our psychology corner at the very beginning, you've got to get an, you got to get the idea, the concept that your opinion, your belief, this FOMO that's often created in the market is designed to work against you. And you've got to get your numbers out of the way of your opinions. You've got to get your numbers out of the way of your FOMO and really get grounded in the reality of like, what is, like, what is actually happening? What is the actual data? And more importantly, what are the patterns that play out? Because these high level institutional investors, they know about all this. They know these uh, tips and tricks and maybe they had to learn them the hard way, right? Maybe they had an experience where they got caught in on buying the news and buying uh, the facts rather than selling at that point. All right. So I think I beat that up well enough. There's my Bitcoin ETF. Um, I don't have a strong opinion either way on the application of Bitcoin. I think it's going to be a tug of war. I don't think we're going to see massive climbs for the year of 2024 in Bitcoin. I am long, like when I say long-term, two to three year bullish on Bitcoin. Uh, but short term right now, until we have some strong news and strong announcements around Bitcoin and the government's supporting that, I I do not see this being something that's going to climb relatively quick in the near future. Now, let's talk about the economy a little bit. I want to talk to you about, I'm going to bring this up really quick. I found this article and I think it alludes to this thing that's happening uh, in the economy that we kind of didn't expect. The end of 2024 or the end of 2023 happened in a way that really set this like really positive light for the markets. In fact, I would say that the markets overreacted to the end of 2024's, 2023's news, meaning we had uh, unemployment relatively low, but high enough that like the feds wouldn't tamper with inflation too much. They wouldn't tamper with rates too much. We had this data that came in around uh, new jobs that came in way above than what we expected. And we had a really great Christmas, meaning people were spending, I call it revenge spending, uh, but people were spending higher than we expected over the holidays. Yes, is debt at an all-time high? Yeah, absolutely. Is credit card debt for the individual in this country at an all-time high? Absolutely. Uh, but it did happen that way. And because of that, the sentiment was 
really positive in the market and 2023 ended really well. Now, a lot of the data is coming in. We're seeing that a lot of companies maybe weren't letting people go for the holidays as kind of a nice uh, way to you know let people spend their holidays. But now we're seeing it. January is kicked in and the layoffs and the announcements around layoffs are happening. And one of the big ones that just happened in the last week is Citigroup. They're, I think it was 8%. They're firing 8% of their total workforce, which equates to over 20,000 employees. And you can see that in this article reported on CNN Business uh, that happened literally January 12th. So this is news and announcement on employment. Now, this is pre-numbers that will go into the unemployment data when that announcement comes out. So non-farm payrolls, when that data comes in and we see like what actual unemployment data is, it's going to equate for this once this rolls out. This is preliminary. So this kind of gives us a sense of like, oh, you know, the data might be actually worse than what we were forecasting for unemployment. And so analysts are already making adjustments. The markets are already starting to adjust. But I frankly believe that the market, the S&P 500, over predicted how well things were going to be going into 2024 with uh, unemployment being one of those key factors. Now, here's another article that kind of reiterates this. And I actually, I love this site. It's called Warren Tracker. Let me pull this up so you guys could see it. And warrentracker.com is something any of you guys can go to. And what it does is you can set up times, dates, uh, segments, industries where you can look at like what is the actual layoffs per industry and uh, also per company. And if you look at this data, let me just bring this down so you can see it. You'll see like layoffs, layoffs versus on uh, like the map of the U.S. You can obviously Florida and Texas are laying off the most right now. You can see uh, what states by numbers in the thousands. And by the way, this was, I mean, this is the month's not even complete. So this is like layoffs for the year, and we're just getting into halfway through January. We have all time records, and then what we have here at the very bottom is like the actual companies. So the number one companies with layoffs all the way down to the least. And this list goes on and on and on. You can keep getting more data on this, but you can see that. And what I've saw with December compared to this month is layoffs are up in all of these companies and all of these sectors. And so I think we kind of overshot our landing. Uh, I think the feds may still have a chance at a soft landing, but I do not anticipate, and I said this earlier, there's a very, in my opinion, a low probability of a rate drop in interest rates going into the first quarter. The market priced in 1.5 in terms of rate drops for 2024 total. That's probably going closer to a percent rather than uh, 1.5% now. And Will there be drops in 2024? I still believe so. Are we finding the bottom this year? Absolutely. I, I think so. You know, This is obviously my personal opinion. However, how are the markets going to react into the first quarter of 2024? I don't think very well. I think we have found the top in the S&P 500. I think we're seeing data, rumor, you could even say rumor data, that's going to come out an actual announcement, actual fact data in the next couple of weeks. 
And I think that it looks grim for the overall markets. Do I think there's going to be a crash? No, but I don't think that we're going to find a new high in the S&P 500 uh, going into next week. How about that? So from a micro standpoint, I think there's some bearish uh, sentiment that's coming from all of the layoffs that's happening. Now, here's another chart that I want to talk to you guys about from the big tech companies. This is also around layoffs. And this is an article that I found on Fast Company. And this is an article about tech layoffs for 2024. And you can see the list. Discord is talking about 17% of its staff, about 170 people. Audible is talking about over 100 people. Google, uh, they don't have the report here, but you can click on the report to get the actual report for layoff. But they're saying hundreds of people. Instagram, laying off people, about 60 employees for the beginning of the year. Humane, about 10 people, and then rent and runaway. So the list isn't like astronomical to see Citigroup's 20,000. Uh, employee announcement, that's a pretty big shift. Here's some things I'll say about layoffs. The companies who do it first, if it's a competitive market and one company's laying off and the other is not, I like investing in companies that are early to layoff. When we saw Meta and its price just tank, one of the things that Zuckerberg did really well is he cut employees down by tens of thousands. He cut out the crap. He cut out the, the expenses they didn't need. They got profitability up. And how did the market react? It became one of the big five again, where people were investing really heavily back into meta. We saw meta prices come all the way back up to their high highs. Now, I like to look at that other competing stocks. If you have a stock where one company is not doing the layoffs, but the other one is, Who's going to be more profitable? Who's going to be positioned better into a recession? Who's going to have gross uh, profits higher than the other? Obviously, the company that's leaning things up. And so it kind of goes back to that, that last thing we were talking about with uh, buy the rumors, sell the news. We often don't think of layoffs as a good thing. But when you see a company do layoffs, it's actually a good opportunity to look at like, should I be buying this stock again? Where... It, you might have a contrarian belief or even sentiment of like, oh, they're laying people off. They must be struggling. I'm going to sell that. And so you could kind of feel it internally as a retail trader. We often are doing the opposite of what's good for us when it comes to investing. And so I'm not saying buy companies that are laying people off. There's obviously signs that layoffs might lead to you know, a company going down the toilet. But you want to look at leadership. You want to look at like who's their board. You want to look at past track records of like them laying off uh, in the past, if they survived some of the last recessions. And if they have a good structure around doing that, it's often a good sign of a really bright future. And you might be buying a price that's uh, really well positioned. So there's my sentiment on layoffs. You heard it from Citigroup, US layoffs, and the tech list. Now I want to talk to you about inflation and how it's going to play into 2024 in terms of like the market and rates. We're all watching rates a ton. Like I said, there's about a percent and a half of rate declines going into 2024 that's already been marked in. So the market has marked, and I won't say all of 2024, also into 2025, but the market has already priced in about a 1.5% rate drop, meaning all this climb in the market is based on a future 
speculation that rates are going to come down about one and a half percent, which is great if you're buying a house, great if you're trying to refinance, great if you've got some debt that needs uh, consolidating or refinancing. Uh, and there's some downsides to this. And so I want to show you something that's happening that may make the argument that we're not done with rate hikes. Or in this case, I don't know if it's a rate hike, but a rate pause. And so there was this article done by Reuters that I'm going to show you really quickly that talks about this lagging indicator that often happens in the insurance market. And so I don't I don't know if you've seen it, but I saw it this year. My health insurance premium went up at least 20%. My car insurance premiums went up like 15%. And so obviously company to company is going to be a little different, but this is this is crazy. And I had to do some research to figure out like why? Like why when inflation mostly happened last year with other industries, why is it happening this year with insurance? And insurance is actually the lagging indicator. And so what I would uh, break down around this, and you can kind of see some of the the notable things in here. Motor vehicle insurance premium skyrocketed almost twenty three percent or twenty point three percent December from a year earlier. Let me break down to you why. So, insurance premiums largely like when an actuator goes, well, how much should we be charging for our insurance? They're going to be looking at costs, and what are the major costs for a car insurance company? Let's say. Well, one is going to be uh, medical liability claims, right? You hit someone, they get in an accident, like they get injured, they get a back injury or whatever. They have to go to the hospital and there's costs around this, right? Well, those costs and the inflation around it have already gone up. There's a secondary piece to this, and that's the cost of goods. To get my car fixed, the steel, the parts, all of those prices went up in 2023 also. And so they didn't really have the data. Now, there's also another piece of why insurance lags. A lot of things like health insurance and uh, often and sometimes car insurance have to go through regulation and approval to get their premiums increased, especially with health insurance. And so a lot of uh, state and federal regulation has to get passed for premiums to even be approved to get increased. And so it's a lagging indicator. Now, we didn't factor this in. I don't even think the feds did a good job factoring this in. And so what does this mean for 2024? It means we're seeing inflation, I mean, a large amount of inflation, a part that it's going to affect every uh, household, where to have a 20% increase in your health insurance and car insurance premiums, that's a big hit to your wallet. And I don't think we have felt that yet, and we will be feeling it into 2024. Now, having said that, there are some other things that are deflating that will maybe hedge the bet a little bit, but I don't think as much. And this this is all making the argument around where will rates be. I don't think we're going to have a rate drop this quarter because of this. I don't think we're going to have the feds come in and drop things a quarter point, a half a point uh, into March because of one, the inflation that we're having. If anything, we should be dropping rates based on the inflation. But then we also have these deflationary things that are happening too. So I think the feds are going to kind of pause and see if things settle down a little bit. And I think they will. I, I don't think we'll see a radical increase in health insurance and car insurance premiums going into 2025. However, adjusting for this massive increase uh, is going to take some time and it will take 
probably into mid 2024 to get this figured out. Now, let me show you my, my hedge on this. So the hedge that's happening right now that we're seeing a lot of deflationary movement is in petroleum and oil. And you can see, I want to share with you first, we'll, we'll go into the charts here in a second. I want to share with you first our reserves. And I don't typically like to tip my hat to the White House. Uh, I typically don't like to tip my hat to politicians because, frankly, it's not like they actually know what they're doing most of the time. And when they do a good job, it's typically luck. It's not because of some brilliant economist that's making decisions for them. Uh, they they don't work that way. It's been my experience watching. However, the Biden administration's timing on petroleum has been phenomenal, uh, whether by accident or planned. Our petroleum reserves, as you can see in this chart, are at like an all-time low. Like we haven't had petroleum reserves this low since 83, since the year I was born. So our petroleum reserves are like an all-time low. And there's been this pressure for us to stock back up because petroleum reserves are a way the government can hedge prices. We can start dumping oil, our reserves, in the case of emergency or in the case of like price instability. We can start pumping oil into the economy to kind of stabilize the price for our country to give us an edge against the rest of the world. Well, as you can see in this chart, we had incredible oil reserves and then we had some slow declines and then during this last administrative uh or during the biden administration and biden's time in the office we have just depleted oil like crazy we've been using it like crazy to help maybe hedge the price a little bit so if you thought gas prices were bad had we not done this they would have been much much worse now what's going on with oil let me show you this chart and i'm going to piece kind of this idea together. Let me get my oil chart up. Now with the price of oil, let's see here. Here's the price of oil. I'm gonna bring this in. You guys can see this pretty well. There we go. So I've marked this and every line is a year. So this was 2023 where the price has been for the price of oil. This is 2022. And you can see that we had price per barrel up into $120 per barrel. And this is when we started getting smart. The U.S. started dumping oil, like our reserves, into the economy. It started helping with supply. The more supply you have, it drops down the price. And we kind of stabilized. Well, the administration, whether by chance or by luck, we're at below $80 a barrel right now, which is phenomenal. It's a great place to be in terms of the price of oil, which gives the U.S. a prime opportunity to stock back up on oil at a low price, right? We were selling oil at an all-time high price, which was great for this country. Now we're going to buy it back when the price is low. And because of demand, oil demand, you can see when you go to the gas pump, regardless of the state you're in, prices are significantly lower. And so hopefully this is somewhat of a hedge. Is it dollar for dollar? I would say not. I probably spend more money in my insurances per month than I do in my fuel to get to work and to travel. 
However, this is a deflationary thing that's happening where we went not even from October, we went from almost $95 a barrel to $73 a barrel, which it's going to take some time, but I would anticipate over the next three months, gas prices continuing to drop. So if you're the feds, if you're having to make a decision, am I going to increase rates, drop rates, along with all the other data points around inflation, uh, CPI, PPI, uh, GDP predictions for the year, I'd also be looking at this. I'd be going, well, what's going on with what's inflating and deflating? Well, we have insurance premiums inflating, but that's likely because of last year. It's catching up. But we also have oil. That's kind of a leading indicator that's deflating. And I'm going to make one last comment before I just completely beat this thing up. The reason oil is an indicator for the economy is when oil demand drops, a recession is often imminent. Now, let me back that up and kind of unpackage this. Oil is the fuel for economy. Uh, I don't care what anyone says. We are a heavily oil-dependent world still. In fact, it's like over 80%. Renewable energies make up less than 20%. Some people argue 10 in some cases. But we are heavily oil-dependent. And so the demand on oil is an indicator of industry. It's an industry. It's an indicator of productivity. It's an indicator of the future. And so when people are pricing in the future price of oil, they're also looking at like, how strong is the economy going to be? How much oil are we going to be producing and using and burning to create and to have more products and have more productivity? And I would say based on price, this is a strong indicator that oil is saying the economy is going into a recession this year. And it's not just oil that's telling us this. The yield curve is saying the same thing right now. The yield curve has never been wrong about a recession. Uh, the markets aren't showing it. We're not really seeing it with unemployment yet. Uh, but overall, I would say this is a pretty good sign that if not a recession, we're definitely going into a contraction in GDP. And I'd say we're not going to be as productive this year as we were last year. And the market's already pricing that in. Oil, like if you're a company that needs oil to make whatever XYZ product, widget, gizmo, you're already factoring in those prices now going into what your demand is going to be into 2024. And companies know better than the government. Companies know better than uh, the overall industry. And each company is looking at their data every week. And they're making these decisions on, well, how much oil should we be buying? And the demand for it is less than it's been uh, over the last probably four to five years. So there's my sentiment on oil. Let's move into AI. So where do I want to start with this? This is a fun one. You guys are going to laugh. I've got this chart, and I want to talk to you about... Let's bring this up really quick. I want to talk to you about uh, the Gartner's hype cycle, and that's what this chart represents. The Gartner hype cycle is a cycle around new innovation and technology. It's And it's really easy to see in the markets. You actually will see stock prices kind of follow the cycle. You'll see uh, actual profits follow the cycle. You'll see the way that people invest often, often follow this cycle. And so let me explain this because it, it really has to do with the psychology. And I really want you to get your opinions and beliefs out of the way. And really get with the facts of how people respond to these hype cycles. We had one 
recently with crypto, blockchain innovation, these cryptocurrencies that happen, the same cycle applied there, uh, and it's still working its way out. And now we're dealing with one in AI. So how does AI and the Gartner hype cycle come together? What does this mean? Well, if you look at this chart, you first had the technology trigger where people are like, oh, there's this AI thing. And you know maybe Chad GPT just came out and people can start playing with this thing and they start seeing like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. This is something that really could make a difference. And then the expectation, you know, people were talking about it replacing everyone's jobs and no one's going to be able to work in the future. And SaaS companies are all going to go out of business because AI will be able to write all the code for them. And so there's like this massive peak that you see at the top. And then people go, oh, this is going to take a lot more work than I thought. Like integrating this, getting these huge ships to turn direction towards AI, making sure it's compliant. We're seeing all these lawsuits against uh, open AI right now about like copy infringement. All this stuff kind of has you go, oh, maybe we were disillusioned a little bit. And so then you see the trough of what's called disillusionment. And then there's kind of this waking up of like, oh, we can actually use AI to do this. And then it does it and it does it well. And here's where we're at in the cycle. We're still kind of in the trough of disillusionment. With certain things, we're kind of coming out into the slope of enlightenment. But right now, we definitely hit the peak around AI in terms of like the hype cycle, the inflated expectations. We're starting to see like, oh, like how do we actually make this thing make us money? How do we actually make this thing make us more productive and not be a distraction, kind of this fun game that we're playing with? And in a lot of industries and things, we're kind of into this trough. If you're a small company or you're kind of like a one-man band, obviously you might be already in the slope of enlightenment around it. Uh, and I'm going to share an example of how, as a company here at Green Chart, uh, we're, we're doing that and we're experiencing that. But for the most part, people are still like, they're investing in AI and there's no AI profitable companies. They're putting money into future AI developments and we're starting to see like, oh, maybe that technology is going to be easily replaced with one app, right? And so a lot of the hype cycle is going away. We're starting to figure out what's going to work and what's not going to work. And I want to share with you something that's worked, uh, kind of a fun story that happened here. And a lot of my clients and a lot of people who got these texts know exactly what I'm talking about. And so I want to introduce you to one of our latest employees. Uh, that we hired, and her name is Sarah. And Sarah uh, got employee of the month last month. And kind of as a joke, I one of our guys used Dolly or you know one of these uh, image generation tools to create like an image of what Sarah might have looked like because Sarah is not actually a real person. Sarah is our AI text bot, and we have this incredible text bot that we developed that interacts with you, the individual who's texting back, like you're a real, like she is a real person. And we tested this for about a month to try to break her. And Sarah is phenomenal. She not only can respond to a text to set an intention for you to join a webinar or meet with a coach, but she'll also track you back into the intention. So we had... We had people, people thought she was so real. They were offering to buy her flowers. We had people, <laughs> probably men, who were asking her for her phone number. Like these were real 
responses to the text message that she was sending out. And frankly, and I'm just disclosing this now, a lot of you may have gotten these texts. She wasn't real. She wasn't a real person. But the AI, we were, we found a way to use this in a way that was way more efficient than a human, way more efficient than a bot. And frankly, people responded to a degree that we probably got four times the enrollment for this webinar that I normally uh, would have gotten like 100 attendees. I got over 400 registered for this event last week using my employee. So as a joke, we made Sarah our employee of the month uh, for the month of January. She's still working hard. She works 24 hours a day, responds anytime during the day. Super helpful. And people loved her. People thought, one, she was real. And two, she was way more responsive and helpful than a human would be because she doesn't get emotionally in involved uh, in any of the context or conversations. And she's very professional. If you try to ask her out or ask what she's wearing, she'll politely redirect you to the conversation and uh, have you get back on track to like, well, you know, haha, that was really funny. But like what? you know, when's a good time we could get you involved? Or I'm sorry, I can't do that. That might jeopardize my job. When's a good time that you could meet with a coach? And uh, she's very well trained as an AI bot. And we're going to continue to work with her. But in terms of like this chart goes, we're kind of out as a company, green chart, we're kind of out of the stage of disillusionment. We're coming into this moment of enlightenment where we're actually using real AI tools to make a difference and real AI tools to actually get returns. And that's real for us. And that's happening for us right now. So I thought that was fun. Uh, but I would say most companies are not there. And I would say big companies are definitely not there unless they're, they've been in AI and they've been building on AI for a long period of time. And next week we should have our latest AI agent bot up and running. And it is, far superior to the one that we already have running. And it will be what ChatGPT will be doing in six months from now. Like we, when we built our AI six months ago, it was searching the web. It was doing multitasking. It was pulling references. ChatGPT took six months to turn that dial and finally start searching the web and allowing people to like pull images and do this sort of thing. The stuff that... I'm going to announce next week around our AI bot is incredible. And it is definitely what the future will be for like these bigger LLMs, but we are definitely leading the way. And uh, we're kind of in this faster slope on the, the enlightenment scale in terms of that chart that I was showing you. All right. So let's keep moving. I know I'm out of time here, guys. So I'm going to skip. I've got a segment that I, I was going to go into, but I'm going to skip it. I want to go. I had this money mishaps thing that was hilarious. Um, we'll skip it. I'll do it next week. I want to get into my trade review. So let me show you my charts. We're going to do gold and the S&P 500. If you need to take off, I completely understand. We kind of had a late start, but I'm going to give you guys about 10 minutes to do my trade on the S&P 500 and on gold, and then I'll get you guys off uh, to your weekend. So let's close this up. Let's go into gold and let's do a quick review. So last week, here's the line that I drew in for last week. And you guys can remember on gold, I had kind of this opinion that we were, it was likely to have a break. Uh, I had some strong opinions on where the price would go. But because of how sharp the channel was, I wasn't as strong as I was on my 
I was stronger on gold than I was on my S&P 500 trade. And so what I want to show you really quickly uh, on my gold chart is we pretty much nailed this. Here's where we were. We said, you know, this was the price on Friday. We said, okay, here's the channel. Obviously, it's going to want to stay in the channel. On Monday, because of the pressure, it's likely going to form inside of this first bubble. Uh, because we were really close to this uh, resistance level, this $2,049 price level that I had set, the day ended like right on it. And so the likelihood of it splitting the difference is what actually happened. And that's why I drew these two circles here. We knew that there was going to be a price between here and here somewhere in this channel on Monday. And then going into Tuesday, it's always hard to predict. It's like, well, if it closes above, it's likely to stay above. If it closes below, it's likely to stay below. If it breaks a channel, we're in a whole new trend. And that's kind of what's going on now. So we are in a new micro trend. We nailed our prices. You kind of had to check in on this day by day, like Monday and then Tuesday. But Monday should have set you up really strong. If you're above the price, it's like, okay, I would have traded above. If it was below, I would have traded it short. And we said that on the last webinar. In fact, I listened to it. I said, look, if this comes out and we get a breakout in this channel, you have price targets well into the 2000s. And I said, you know, keep it above being like that 12, 2016 price level. Uh, but don't, don't be so concerned about it. Set your take profits long. Let your losers uh, cut your losses short and, and set your stops right above your support and resistance levels. And so this is just a basic technical analysis of like how to trade gold. And so I'm going to give you the same thing going into next week, my sentiment on this, where I think things are going. And we're going to kind of clear out the charts a little bit because we are in more of a long-term short trend, which these micro trends finally established. So now we're in this longer term, and I like this channel a lot more than I did these little micro channels that we had, these little short one-week trends or even three-day trends. This trend I like a lot more, which shows a lot more strength in the support and resistance, this non, we call it non-linear support, non-linear resistance. And we were right in the middle of this support and resistance, the 2000 price and the 2050 price. I love this. This is like trading, scalping, uh, opportunity galore. Like I love being in a place like this because it's easy to take profits. It's easy to predict from a technical analysis standpoint where the price is going to go. Because we are in the middle, I lean more short because of the channel. Because we're in the middle of our support and resistance, I lean more short, meaning it's more likely like we're going to be in this price range right here, right? And it's likely to test the price above. It's likely to go below, but it's going to want to stay in this area. And then going into Wednesday and Thursday, this is going to continue but it's going to get smaller. This gap is going to get smaller. And let me actually extend this. I'm going to redraw this so you guys can see the extension of it. Come on. And give it some legs. There we go. All right, good. 
So this will give us some legs. So this kind of tells us what's going on in the future. But you can tell every day that this happens, it's going to go further out. And so this is more likely. I'm just going to kind of highlight this. This is the three. This is the three. And then we have some options for the breakout. And this would be fundamental, like something that happens fundamentally. But the odds of this is like a one. Ah, bring that back. Meaning the odds of this breaking into this edit is much less. And the odds of it coming below the support level is the same as well. So here is kind of the trade setup. Sideways movement. If the price today or, I mean, if it closes today, it's only 10 o'clock. If the price closes way up here, I'm going to be pretty bearish. I'm going to be setting my stop losses pretty tight above this channel. You could even set it above the 2050 level. That's probably more room than you need. And then I'd be setting take profits clear down here, right above the support. Now, if it drops today, if I get a massive drop today, then I'd be buying and I'd be taking it up into the upside. But you want to be a little more cautious buying than selling right now because the trend is short and we want to be trading the trend. So if it goes up, I love a short trade. A short trade, I would be in all day on this. A buy trade, I'm going to be a little more hesitant. But you've got until like Wednesday to start worrying about the pressure of that buy trade uh, coming down. Wednesday, Thursday, depending on where the price is, you might be looking for a breakout into the upside, a breakout below the support level. But more than likely, the price is going to end up here. And so again, you're just looking for it to hit the high, sell it. You're looking for it to hit the low, buy it. And you want to be kind of doing that within these ranges with relatively tight stops. So that's my analysis on gold. Let me save this really quick. And let's move over to the S&P 500. And you'll see this was the trade that I was less confident about because of how sharp the trend was. I liked my gold trade better than I liked my S&P 500 trade. You guys remember me saying that last week. I was going, eh, I probably wouldn't take this trade. And then on gold, I was like, yeah, I probably would because of the trend. However, this is what happened. Here was Friday. We marked Monday would likely be in this price. It would continue in the trend. But because, again, how sharp that trend was, I said, eh, we got to be careful because into the next week, the price is going to probably want to stay between this support and resistance level, which it did. Did it go sideways towards the high side? Nope. It broke out literally on Monday. And then from there, started bottoming out. And a lot of that had to do with some news uh, that came out, which is the fundamental side. So did we get it right? Yes. Uh, was it a riskier trade? Absolutely. <clears throat> I would have stuck with my gold trade all day. This one I would have avoided more, which uh, I tipped you off to that last week. Let's go into this week. I'm going to clear out a lot of this so that we can see things a little clearer. You can see... We are pretty much sideways. We're in this new trend that, I mean, I could take it from here. I'm going to do that. But we are pretty much sideways on this trend, which means I'm just going to delete this. We are using complete support and resistance, so horizontal support and resistance, and we're going to be doing most of our technical analysis just on that. So if I'm not using channels, if I don't need channels, this is a very simple analysis of how to use support and resistance for your trades. Because of where we're at, this is the trade zone going into Monday and Tuesday. 
It is going to test this. We are going to have to have some crazy news for this to break out of this and to go into higher highs. Can that happen? Absolutely. Do I think it'll happen based on technicals? No, I do not. So we have a lot of potential for a short trade all the way down to 4,752. So because this is high, the position to go short uh, is really, it's really strong. In fact, this would be a great short trade, like right now, where you'd set your take profit down in here, right? You'd like have your take profit somewhere down here. You have your stop loss somewhere up here. I'm going to delete those so it doesn't confuse us. But that's what you'd be doing is stop loss. You put up here where the price has never been. So it's safe. It has room to breathe. So maybe like 48.18. And then I'd be selling this thing probably down. There's a lot of price action in here. Probably down into the 47.66. And that likely will fill in Monday or Tuesday. Now, obviously, check in Monday. See how it's going. See what kind of announcements are coming out. Decide if you want to hold it into Tuesday. But this might be a two-day trade. It may take all the way one, two, three. It may take three days to get in. And I'm going to draw this little circle in to kind of indicate that we talked about this, that this might take one, two, three days to get in. And I'm going to mark it with a two just so that we remembered an exit might take up to three days. If that doesn't happen, you want to start looking at what's the new setup. Do we have a new trend? I'm not seeing a very strong trend. There is this kind of micro channel. You see this? There's kind of this upward micro channel, but you can see that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, even Thursday fits within our support and resistance levels. So I'm not really concerned short term about this. Now, if I was going to hold it for a week or two weeks, I might be looking at this channel, but I'm just, I'm going to keep it in there, but I'm just not for today. So that wraps it up, guys. That is our uh, Market Pulse podcast for Friday. I believe, what is today? The 19th. And we'll be doing this same time, same place next week. And I won't have to do as much catching up because we didn't have our uh, Real Estate Friday forecast the week before. But uh, a lot of a lot of good data. A lot of, for me anyways, as a trader, a lot of good data came out this week. A lot of tradable data came out this week. And as you can see, I'm bullish and bearish on various things, depending on uh, obviously our technical analysis that we did. So tune in next week to see how we did on our trades. I'll keep you updated on news and announcements. And until then, stay safe traders, and we'll see you uh, next Friday. Thanks so much.